This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The election of 2020, a choice between two worldviews. The noise around the elections of 2020 is reaching a crescendo. Every four years, the talking heads in the two major political parties tell us, this is the most important election of our times. This time, the bold statement may be true. In this episode of Return to Order Moment, Mr. John Horvath II focuses on the election. First, he examines it in historical context. Then, he looks at three specific instances. Each clarifies the direction in which the United States is heading. In the first article, he discusses how these elections put us in apocalyptic times. Our elections are taking on sinister overtones. Each one is billed as the most important of our lifetime. And each one is the most important. Until the next election. Each time, the unraveling political process brings our Armageddon closer. Thus, we live in times of apocalypse elections, in which the victory of one side represents an apocalypse for the other. The only way to avoid total breakdown is an exhausting seesaw of stalemates in which one party prevails over the other, which keeps the winner of the White House in check by holding on to the House or the Senate. However, the general direction of the country is toward disintegration. The nation is polarized and coming apart. A real apocalypse is in the making. This scenario is a recent phenomenon, since elections in times past were never this dramatic or consequential. The political parties had significant differences, but the nation had a common direction inside the liberal order. There was political drama, but not an apocalypse's fire and brimstone. A political system reflects the society it governs. Thus, when society had some order, people found ways of resolving problems civilly. Courtesy and modesty governed human relationships and prevented the explosions of unbridled passions. Virtue played an essential role in regulating society and keeping things balanced. Although the American order has long contained the seeds of a later explosion, gravitas and respect for politics informed most of its history. They kept the apocalypse's four horsemen at bay. Everything changed when social structures deteriorated in the 60s and 70s. The safety nets and guardrails that kept society civil and moral fell by the wayside. A cultural revolution shook America like an earthquake, challenging all institutions, fashions, morals, and orthodoxies. The revolution set in motion gradual political processes, which sought to mainstream the radical culture changes showcased at Berkeley and Woodstock. Revolutionaries hoped that society would accept the changes without much resistance. They did not expect the profound reactions against procured abortion, same-sex quote-unquote marriage, socialism, transgenderism, and most recently, Satanism. They were not prepared for the grueling culture war of the last 50 years, which continues unabated in vast sectors of the American public. Instead of the smooth transition of parallel narratives, American society has polarized and clashed. 
Everything is now weaponized, politicized, and radicalized. From sports to bathrooms, pronouns to personal preferences. Hence, the rise of intense apocalypse elections. Like the biblical narrative, apocalypse elections happen when a decadent society is faced with an anti-Christian agenda so forceful that it sparks serious reaction. Not all react to the anti-Christian offensive equally. However, in America, the Christian element did mobilize and engage the overwhelming attack on its values. The struggle forced each side to seek an ever more intense application of its bedrock principles. Each faction strove to express itself more authentically and clearly. Thus, each successive apocalypse election builds toward an apotheosis with ever more dramatic consequences. However, apocalypse elections are far more than partisan affairs. A final victory of one party over the other will not resolve the problem. In the present climate, political parties are shallow surface representations of unseen tectonic movements deep within American society. Political conventions and campaigns must often adapt their messages to the fickle sentiments of voters and are thus limited in their ability to represent the profound issues. However, the elections are apocalyptical because they reflect an existential struggle to define America's soul. They are apocalyptical because they represent a fight between good and evil, truth and error, faith and disbelief. Thus, the Herculean back-and-forth struggle will bring the deeper issues to the surface. The real battle in today's society is between two contrary visions of life. One side groups together Ten Commandments Americans, those who still value the remnant of Christian civilization centered on the God-given institutions of family, community, and faith. They defend the philosophical framework of Western thought and recognize God's sovereignty over His creation. The other side's flag represents an aggressive anti-Christian civilization based upon postmodern thought and extreme individualism that questions all certainties, values, and narratives. It represents no masters, save the unbridled passions burning like demons within each soul. In the ever-shrinking center is a decadent society that is being forced to choose which way it will go. The liberal establishment and media favor the anti-Christian side. The battle is playing out in the streets of Portland or other cities, where rioters now roll out guillotines, burn flags and Bibles, and unabashedly attack the forces of law and order. They shout death to America. These disruptors follow the script of countless other revolutionaries of the past, attempting to terrorize complacent and decadent societies into submitting to totalitarian agendas. A mostly silent majority of Americans attached to God, order, and country opposes these rioters. This majority of Ten Commandments Americans must speak out. It must not be intimidated by the dark message of hatred and class struggle. On the contrary, it must soundly reject it. The present apocalypse election is a dangerous step toward revolution. All must choose what America is going to be. 
At this point, Mr. Horvat shifts from the historical to specific events. He focuses on one aspect of the Democrats' convention in National Convention Revealed Liberals Under God Problem. If there is one takeaway from the gaudy liberal fest at the virtual Democratic National Convention in mid-August, it would have to be that liberals have a God problem. It's not a problem with his existence. The convention was hardly a collection of the unchurched atheists and agnostics intent upon eradicating religion from America. The nation is much too religious to tolerate such a rejection of God. Many convention participants, including the candidates, profess some kind of faith. Notoriously liberal religious figures like Father James Martin and Sister Simone Campbell prayed at the convention, although Sister did not mention God, but referred to a quote-unquote divine spirit. Many speeches ended with the traditional God Bless America closing. The organizers made a special effort to showcase religion at the event. Thus, most liberals have no problem with God or a God with various pronouns, as long as that God remains personal, unimposing, and vague. Their real problem with God is different. Two minor incidents at the Democratic Convention spoke volumes about this problem and helped to define the debate around religion in America. Two caucus meetings at the convention began by reciting the Pledge of Allegiance that omitted the phrase, under God. The online caucuses represented Muslim and LGBT members and were posted on social media. The omission was hailed with approval and applause by those who commented on the postings. The omissions revealed that radical liberals do not have a God problem, but an under-God problem. The addition of the word under changes everything. It introduces many concepts that offend liberal sensibilities. The term under clashes with lifestyles and habits that turn God into a creature of one's whims. Liberal objections to under God fall into several categories. The first involves their egalitarian metaphysics. It exalts the individual and makes each a god with nothing above or below the person. Thus, they have a problem with under God because it recognizes God's sovereignty over the universe. It means that God has control over humanity, and humanity has obligations to God due to the relationship between creator and creature. This offends the radical individualism of the liberal order, which falsely contends no need to acknowledge dependence on a superior being. Under God highlights the inequality that exists between God and humanity and insinuates other natural and just inequalities that make up the social hierarchies and harmonies that should exist in society. Such a conclusion offends the liberals' radical egalitarianism that sees all natural inequalities as unjust and the basis for class struggle. Under God speaks of a transcendent order in which there are spiritual values and realities above the materialistic order of things. It is consistent with the spiritual side of human nature. This superior side is what makes every person unique. It gives rise to political, social, cultural, and religious activities that tower above the pleasure-seeking world of self-gratification of modern times.
The second category of objections falls under the restrictions imposed on creatures that liberals see as being contrary to freedom. Under God presupposes a set of laws that establish God's rights over humanity. God's law is the instrument by which humanity thrives in accordance with nature. It is to be loved and obeyed as a key to happiness. This is contrary to the individual's quest to determine a personal law and truth by which each enjoys life, yet often ends it in misery. Under God reflects God's justice, by which those over which he rules are rewarded for good deeds and punished for evil doings. To be under God is to accept the sweet yoke of his objective rule as to what is just and not the subjective determinations so often fantasized by liberal social justice warriors. A final objection applies to how God governs humanity under the mantle of his love. Under God is an affirmation of God's loving providence, by which he protects and provides for the needs of all humanity as all act to glorify him. To be under God is to be under his protection and care. This vision of human development runs so contrary to the liberal model of random and spontaneous evolution that defies rational scientific explanation and deprives life of meaning and purpose. Under God is an expression of God's immense charity, by which he loves humanity beyond all measures, even to the point of death on the cross. God wishes to communicate his goodness and the fruits of redemption to all who know, love, and serve him. Indeed, the expression under God contains the faint echoes of the Catholic teaching on the social kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. So much is contained in that single word, under. Political party conventions usually deal with platforms, promises, and strategies for governing. However, as America strays ever farther from the paths of righteousness, such issues are increasingly irrelevant. When we abandon being under God, everything falls apart. The real questions revolve around how America deals with the word under. The future depends on whether the nation embraces or rejects that powerful and liberating truth. Mr. Horvat turns to the disturbing events in Portland, Oregon. He examines them in his article, Traitors Among Us, the Public Officials Who Coddle Radical Insurrectionists. This article was first published on LifeSite News under the title, Rioters Are Burning Portland Down and Cowardly Politicians Are to Blame. A drama is unfolding in Portland, Oregon that bodes ill for the nation. Order and the rule of law are at stake. The Portland plot is not an isolated event. It could well be a trial run for similar shows in cities across the nation. The media narrative about what is happening in Portland is all wrong. It is written using an old class struggle script in which angry protesters are victimized by brutal police authority. These rioters, curiously costumed in black garb, are supposedly concerned social warriors fighting for a just cause. The police represent an evil and racist regime. The real story needs to be told. The false characters should be unmasked. 
This is a tragedy that must be stopped before it ruins the nation. It is time to act, calling a spade a spade and not dawdle while the nation burns. What are the real components of this show? The first thing that must be established is that the protests are not protests. They have gone well beyond the point of expressing an opposing opinion. They are not riots, since they are not rowdy disturbances gone awry. These demonstrators have deliberately planned events subverting order night after night. There is nothing spontaneous about them. Thus, the violence is not just violence. It must be called sedition because it is a, quote, incitement of, resistance to, or insurrection against lawful authority, unquote. These acts of sedition are meant to injure police, damage state property, and disturb the peace. The individuals involved in these acts of sedition are not protesters, rioters, or demonstrators. They are insurrectionists. They do not desire to fix the system or improve the present society. They want the overthrow of a legitimate order and the installation of a contrary and illegitimate state of things. The city and state police and Homeland Security officers are the second players on the set in Portland. They endure the abuse from the insurrectionists. They are not the instruments of violence, but agents of order and the rule of law. Whatever their defects may be, they are the thin blue line standing between order and chaos. They can be called heroes because they go beyond the call of duty in dealing with the revolutionaries in their acts of sedition. Their service to the community usually does not include lasers flashed to harm their eyes. Commercial-grade fireworks seek to injure their bodies. They should not be exposed to the obscenities and insults that call harm upon them. They face acts of arson that attempt to burn down federal and other buildings with them inside. These heroes bear with this abuse peacefully and calmly night after night. This is the cast of characters found upon the streets of Portland. It reflects a dangerous and explosive situation. However, another situation is far worse. The scene in the drama changes from the violent streets of Portland at night and shifts to the government offices of city and state officials viewing the tragic scenes during the day. These characters should favor the heroes of order and oppose the seditious insurrectionists who hate lawful authority and its symbols. However, this is far from the case. In a strange twist of the plot, the local government officials do everything possible to facilitate the nightly disorders. They complain about the actions of federal officials who take measures against the revolutionaries. It is as if the characters in this government set have lost their minds and joined the other side. The plot loses coherence, and everything goes haywire. However, there is no other way to explain the inexplicable actions of liberal officials in the face of violence and chaos. Most of these figures are supporting the insurrectionists. Oregon Governor Kate Brown, for example, has denounced not the revolutionaries, but the federal agents. She accuses them of escalating the violence, even though the violence continued after the federal agents left the scene. 
her Department of Justice is taking legal action against the federal government for intervening in the nightly battles to protect federal buildings. Another scandalous example is that of Multnomah County District Attorney Mike Schmidt. He announced that his office would not prosecute most of the over 500 insurrectionists that have been arrested by police throughout the acts of sedition. Those charged will be limited to acts of deliberate property damage, theft, or threat of violence. However, only 50 have been charged for now. The release of so many lawbreakers assures the insurrectionists on the street that their criminally seditious acts will have no legal consequences. They are free to continue their macabre march to chaos, free of the restrictions of the law. Indeed, insurrectionists continue to throw mortars, rocks, bottles, and cans of paint at the police. They chant, Kill a cop! Save a life! They set off fireworks aimed at police who are not expected to react lest they be accused of quote-unquote brutality. These acts of surrender to insurrectionists prompted the Oregon State Police to abandon Portland after protecting the federal courthouse, arresting offenders, and sustaining injuries. Captain Timothy Fox said that the troopers are moving, quote, back to counties where prosecution of criminal conduct is still a priority, unquote. The strain of the acts of sedition is preventing Portland City Police from responding to increased criminal activities in other parts of the city. Many calling 911 are put on hold. The police department reports increased calls requesting help against, quote, theft, vandalism, suspicious activity, hazards, hit-and-run, burglary, violation of restraining orders, alarms, stolen cars, harassment, and many others, unquote. The whole community suffers from the dereliction of duty by a few local government officials. A leftist agenda holds the city hostage. The drama is not yet over since the final act has yet to be written. A cast of characters has yet to appear on the stage. The final scene takes place on Portland's empty streets during the day that are surreal reflections of the violence of the night. Everywhere, this is evidence of the nightly conflicts in the form of trash or broken glass. The buildings bear the battle scars of flashbangs and mortar-style fireworks. The federal court and other buildings are boarded up and full of graffiti. The characters are Portland citizens who have allowed their city to be used as a stage for this macabre drama. They are largely silent as their downtown is destroyed. The nation acts if they will speak up and protest against these barbarous acts that threaten their city and personal security. Not even the destruction of their community seems large enough to overcome the liberal haze that lingers over the scene and clouds their vision. At this point, it remains to name the culprits bearing the most responsibility, the criminally negligent public officials. Their coddling of the insurrectionists represents an immense betrayal of the public trust. The city's safety and the common good are put at risk because these officials put their leftist pet causes above the fundamental, natural, and constitutional rights of their citizens. These officials can no longer be called public servants. They are traitors who betray the trust of the public they are sworn to serve. 
and instead they favor the avowed enemies of order, the rule of law, and the common good. St. Thomas Aquinas teaches that justice in law comes from its service to the common good. Indeed, law that does not serve the common good is not law at all. Likewise, public authority is instituted for the common good of all citizens. When public officials fail to uphold order and the rule of law, they subvert the common good. They should be denounced, protested, publicly shamed, and legally removed. It remains to be seen if Portland's and Oregon's citizens will have the courage to take this necessary step. However, the concern for order extends farther than Portlanders and Oregonians. All American citizens who grieve for the nation must be alarmed by this tragic drama that can spread like cancer over the entire country. The final segment of this episode concerns those who would like to sleep through the disturbances. Mr. Horvat predicts a rude awakening in his article, Never Underestimate the Optimism of Moderates and the Determination of the Radicals. As the nation erupts in violence, many are concerned. Most have not seen this kind of unrest in their lifetimes. The triple whammy of virus, riots, and recession is testing the nerves of even the most seasoned optimist. However, nothing seems to shake some people who take a moderate position in the face of everything. They dismiss Portland's nightly street battles as the work of a few extremists. For them, the Black Lives Matter revolution represents a rowdy bunch that kickstarts a much-needed national conversation about race and equality. The economic recession is an occasion for the government to spend untold trillions to help the poor and disadvantaged. David Brooks, in his New York Times article, This is Where I Stand, welcomes the actions of the radicals. Although he does not count himself among them, he assigns to radicals a constructive role for the country's future. Quote, Radicals are good at opening our eyes to social problems and expanding the realm of what's sayable. Unquote. Indeed, Mr. Brooks argues, radicals shake people from their complacency and get things moving. They rock the boat by their exaggerated statements and actions. Of course, there are always a few road bumps to frighten those caught in the middle. There might even be regrettable violence, which is the price of change. Mr. Brooks reasons that the impractical and cranky radicals are intransigent people. They inevitably get into squabbles among themselves. That is when the adults, the more reasonable and moderate wings of their coalitions, take over the show. These pragmatic spirits know how to take the radical goals that scare and keep everyone awake at night and, quote, work them within the democratic framework to achieve them, unquote. Thus, America's present troubles would be, in Mr. Brooks's view, a sign of hope and opportunity. Mr. Brooks is correct in affirming that the radicals represent the rage of those who desire seemingly unattainable goals for society. In history, more often than not, they fail. Others, who are not firebrands, sometimes complete their work. However, Especially when applied to the left, his conclusion calls for a sober dose of nuance. Radical leftist rage does not inevitably lead to the triumph of moderates and common sense. 
On the contrary, it frequently yanks society further left. Often, either moderates embrace the leftist's radical goals or they are swallowed by them. Never underestimate the left's double-tier action. Radical and moderate forms. Bad cop, good cop. Quicker and slower speeds. In both tiers of action, the left's goal is always the same. The destruction of the Christian framework of society, the crushing of private property, and the suppression of the family. The reaction from the right must be clear-sighted, energetic, and uncompromising. The left's present double-tier activism could lead to two possible scenarios. The first scenario is an explosion of leftist radicalism in America that fails to take power. However, its radical ideas percolate down and eventually transform society. The Brazilian Catholic thinker, Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira, explains the role that the radical left often plays in history. In his book, Revolution and Counter-Revolution, he notes that radical revolutions often fail— but that they are far from useless. He writes, quote, The explosions of these extremists raise a standard and create a fixed target whose very radicalism fascinates the moderates who slowly advance toward it. Unquote. Thus, the left establishes shiny goals that act like magnets planted amidst society. For example, liberal moderates may shun socialist ideas. However, they are often mesmerized by the socialists' false claims to help the poor. Because both are part of the same process leftward, liberals silently admire and gradually move toward socialist fantasies. The radicals' failure is only apparent. Their actions powerfully advance the march of the country leftward by, quote, gradually attracting the countless multitudes of the prudent, the moderates, and the mediocre toward the realization of their culpable and exacerbated chimeras, unquote. Today's radicals rocking American society are mainstreaming their socialist, LBGTQ, and ecological fantasies to the general public. Whether they physically grab power at this point is immaterial. Their ideas are being firmly planted in minds, and society is stewing them and preparing for a new shift leftward. Just as the socialist revolutionaries of the 60s mainstreamed the self-destructive ideals of promiscuity, free love, and vulgarity, so too will the new BLM Antifa radicals transform society in their image today. If not denounced, shamed, and stopped, they will succeed. Moreover, the radicals will achieve this more quickly than 60 years ago, since the process of decadence in society is much more advanced today, and they encounter much less resistance. Thus, both the radicals' seeming failure and the moderates' optimistic triumph constitute a real danger for America. Both actions must be resisted since they only represent different speeds toward the same goal. The second danger radicals represent for America consists of a scenario in which they wrest control of the levers of power, torching any hope of the moderates for a gradualist march. 
Mr. Brooks's vision of cranky radicals shaking up the nation could go awry. An uncontrolled spiral of events could swallow the quote-unquote prudent moderates. America could experience the Jacobin rule of rage that growled threateningly from Seattle's macabre Chaz Chop enclave and today erupts on Portland's streets. That possibility is far from remote. These characters of fury are everywhere, shouting out and calling for the destruction of what America once represented. They are found in the liberal establishment and media, decrying America's past and promoting a socialist future. They are even found in the marbled halls of Congress. Even now, the radicals would suppress America's freedoms to impose their vision upon citizens. Leading figures say that they will use the state of COVID emergency to fast-forward processes to bring about change in America and the world. Moderates refuse to consider this hypothesis. They are in denial. As proof, they like to cite historical cases, like America's War of Independence, when reason and common sense prevailed over the radical French philosophies of the time. They pontificate a similar outcome today for America. However, history has not always been so kind as to guarantee happy endings. The tragic collapse of countries to communist or Nazi regimes usually begins with the optimism of the moderates and the prudent ones. It happened during the French Revolution. Like Mr. Brooks, this optimism of moderates refuses to admit that radical leftists will naturally seek the extreme consequences of their bizarre ideologies. They realize only too late that radicals do not play by the rules. Those stuck in the middle are usually the first surprised victims of the savagery of Jacobin, Bolshevik, or Islamist mobs. The lessons of history show that the only effective way to fight against the rage of the radicals is the firm, resolute, and uncompromising action by lawful authority to defend the rule of law and order. In tandem, the institutions of family, community, and faith must be boldly affirmed and strengthened. They stand in the breach for civilization against the onset of chaos. Both measures require the nation and its leadership to return to God and His law. Americans must take a stand against the left's absurd ideologies that will lead the country to ruin, either gradually or directly. The disastrous optimism of moderates like Mr. Brooks must be avoided. On the contrary, clarity of vision and firm resolve in the defense of order and the rule of law must be embraced and pursued quickly. This concludes the election of 2020, a choice between two worldviews. Thank you so much for listening. To read these or find related articles, please visit our websites at www.tfp.org and www.returntoorder.org. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be the source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. In that way, you can help Return to Order be more effective. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2020 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, 
family, and property, TFP.